Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today we have a special guest with us, Pat, an old friend of mine from college. He is a police officer in the Pacific Northwest region, and I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about what it's like to be a police officer in today's 2018 world. I feel like the police are in the news a lot, and there's a lot of what I believe to be misconceptions or overgeneralizations or simplistic notions of of the uh, of police officers in general and what it's like actually to work as one. And Pat has been a how long you've been a police officer? Uh, almost uh, twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. So uh, the reason why Pat's on the podcast is a couple weekends ago I. Ha, he invited. I've I've always wanted. He's he's been having this weekend this weekend party, uh, been going on for a number of years, and I have either not been invited or didn't have time to go because I was in graduate school. And now that I have a little bit more free time in my older age, I finally just said, "Man, I gotta go to Pat's big weekend nerd party because they they get together as like ten guys and they land up all their computers and they play." land games like you know back in the day it was half-life and now it's like dota 2 and and they also have a a bunch of throwing knives and throwing axes that you throw at a target and you make a big bonfire and it's just a it's just a man weekend right yeah and so uh i i finally got a chance to go and it was a blast and around the campfire i was talking with pat about uh, what it's like to be uh, in the police, and I thought, man, this is this should this is podcast gold. I got to have Pat over to my house, and I got to have him on the podcast. So, welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Uh, Pat, um, what is it like? to be a police officer for 28 years. Can, can you summarize 28 years of, of life into a little bit of time here? Yeah. I, I don't know. It's really difficult uh, to summarize it. It's been fun. Um, uh, when fun. I would, what do you mean by fun? Exactly. Well, when I was looking for something to do, um, you know how you're in college and you're trying to figure out what your life's going to be like. I knew that I couldn't, find a job that would be behind a desk. I was looking for something kinetic and What active. was your major in? English. English, English lit, yeah. So Did I know that back then? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Um, uh, and Pat, Pat was a couple years older than me in college, and so uh, I looked up to him. He was like this, <laughs> he was this, you know, big man on campus. Uh, he He had a lot of friends. He always, he always made people laugh. I'll never forget this one time he was basically doing a stand-up comedy routine and just had me and a bunch of other younger guys just rolling on the ground. But anyway, so you're in college and you're just like, I know I don't want to work behind a desk. And yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, the other part of that is my dad, uh, worked in law enforcement. And so I think maybe there's some influences there, yeah, you know, I'll kind of following, uh, the family, job. So, um, so I, uh, started testing. Um, I was actually, it right out of college or I actually got hired before I graduated. Oh, interesting. So yeah. And then I had to come back, uh, uh, to school. It took me another four or five years to get my degree. So, um, 
But I think, uh, and, and I don't know what it, you probably know more with your psychology. I don't know what it is about young men and uh, that sort of um, quest for adventure, you know, that interest in uh, doing things that are exciting. And, and so I think a big part of it for me at the time was, uh, you know, excitement and looking for a job that would, would, uh, be exciting and, um, and just, uh, the other piece I think is, uh, where I could interact with other, a lot of other people and in a way that, uh, hopefully would be helpful, helpful for them. So were you scared at all about the job? I mean, I guess you had your dad to, to know like what the ins and outs were, but was it, cause I imagine for many people it would, the prospect of becoming a police officer would have some element of fear, you know, the idea of getting in harm's way, that kind of thing. I don't, that, that I guess that never crossed my mind when I was looking into the job. Um, you know, I grew up with it and so, uh, but they, and, and I should say that the things have changed a lot in law enforcement since I started to the way it is now, but they do a pretty good job of putting the fear in you during training. So a lot of, how what, do they do that? Well, a lot of what you do in training is, um, you know, dash cams and, uh, uninvolved citizen videos have been around, you know, uh, since the seventies and eighties. And so they have, you know, they have actual footage of cops getting really hurt, uh, on the job. Uh, and, and part of that is to sort of, um, in hindsight, analyze the mistakes that they made that led up to these, you know, in many cases, tragic outcomes. Uh, and so at the time I went, it was, uh, um, three months, the Academy was three months long and, and, not only did they show you the films, but um, they uh, drilled it into you during the training about tactics and how to stay safe. So, and is that more buttoned up now, um, or is that well, same? I'm, well, I, I, uh, I haven't gone through the academy in a long time, but uh, uh, I think the that uh, law enforcement has evolved a lot since then, and so there's a lot more emphasis on. Uh, de-escalating. Uh, we used to call it verbal judo, uh, which I think is uh, a little bit anachronistic now. And now it's uh, uh, de-escalation training and uh, communication well, techniques used to get people who are in that fight and flight, that um, uh, primitive brain, right. uh, and get them back out into their um you know, thinking and making uh, more rational choices. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's smart. I remember hearing if, I don't know, you tell me if this is common, but that as therapists, we're often concerned with communication and with people's states and this sort of thing. We're not usually interested in de-escalation because we don't usually have firsthand experience with clients who are escalating. Some people do, but the notion between relationships, you know, if a couple or a family comes in and, you know, they get upset and they go into a fight or flight state, then the uh, ability for people to communicate and essentially calm down the situation is is relevant to our work. And 
I remember hearing that police officers are trained upon, you know, when they come upon a scene and they see some people fighting or some guys really agitated and the police officer says, what's going on here? And, and the guy seems very agitated. You know, he's, he's yelling, he's, he's not making a lot of sense. And, you know, he's, he might be, he might even have a knife in his hand or something. And instead of saying things that escalate the situation, like, I'm going to shoot you or um, how dare you or, you know, whatever. Right. Just start yeah. screaming at some guy like, you know. Calm down. That's yeah. always a client. Right. Know. Calm <laughs> down. Instead, the de-escalation that works that is totally in line with research and with observation is you ask a person what's going on. How are you doing? You know, and then they'll, they say something like, well, I don't know what's going on. Okay. So you don't know what's going on. Like, tell, tell me more. You know, you're just like, I'm open to hearing you. The whole idea is is like people tend to freak out when they feel like no one understands them. You know, they need to feel like someone gets what they're saying at least. And for many people, I'm guessing that calms them down. If you just like, I'm listening, tell me what you are saying to me. I want to understand. And once, and if you do the opposite, people tend to escalate, you know, cause they're, they go into more fight or flight. Is that element talked about? Well, I have a couple. Yeah. I mean, um, nothing you just said there is, uh, uh, foreign, uh, you know, often I will ask people what their name is. What do they do? Um, you know, are they married? Do they have children? And get, oh, really? So get them to, to start um, sort of off, get them off balance, right? Well, and just to, I mean, when you when you have to answer questions like that, you need to reach that cognitive part of your brain, and it has a tendency to, at least my experience tells me, to get uh, somebody thinking. Sort of, uh, I think, reduces the the fight or flight urge or the. Um, some people call it lizard brain, yeah. uh, the, you know, early evolving part of the brain. Um, but the thing, I, the thing I think, uh, and you mentioned you, you, uh, your listeners would be interested in, in kind of understanding, uh, police work is, uh, you know, at the same time you're trying to get somebody's fear or aggression under control, you may be also experiencing the same thing. I mean, if, if you're dealing with somebody uh, who's armed with a, a butcher knife and you've seen the videos from the academy of what a butcher knife can do, do to a person and how lethal it is, you're also scared and you're also trying to keep your emotions uh, in check. And it's, so the whole combination uh, can be super volatile yeah. and, and challenging. And uh, Are people trained to, to notice and reduce their distress level in the moment? So we... Our uh, training program has uh, EI components, um, and I think most police departments training uh, programs have uh, an emotional intelligence. Uh, and I think that there is a, a capability to teach people some of that, but my experience uh, uh, over the years in training new deputies is that not not everybody shows up equipped with the tools yeah, I, to do that. Yeah, so. totally. I mean, it, it's it's something that I it was actually a component of my dissertation research which was to look at therapist experience of difficult clinical moments however they define that and a lot of people define that as a situation which was quite scary, you know, someone starts to threaten them. One person talked about how 
a known gangster who may or may not have killed people in the past was sort of forced his way into the office and, and was trying to suss out whether or not this therapist knew things or not. And she was, you know, it was a scary moment for her because she thought, well, how do I get out of this without getting on this guy's hit list and having to move to Mexico to get, you know, it was a scary situation. And so for her to, and so my dissertation was having people describe what that felt like. Um, but therapists on, you know, for the most part, it is a known, I mean, you know, you're, I have a lot of books on my shelf, probably 10% of them deal with the experience of a therapist as you are in contact with clients and, and going deep, you know, going into your parents and your childhood and we call it counter-transference or parallel experience, um, or person of the therapist. There's several different terms for it. It's a very wide area. And, um, we do that because of for self-preservation, but also because we're, we're better therapists when we understand that, you know, if we're triggered, we're going to react differently to our clients. And, uh, I would imagine that would be very helpful, uh, either innately or trained for police officers to, to have that skill. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I've noticed over the years, people will show up and they just, they were like, they were born with it and it's natural to them. And they can talk to people, have the, you know, the gift of gab, and they're good at listening, and they tend to be really successful. Uh, and then there are uh, some who uh, just need time and experience and training to get there. And there's some you can tell this is never going to work. Meaning um, that they overreact or something? Well, I mean, uh, they have difficulty controlling their aggression and their own emotions. They uh, um, have difficulty uh, backing down from, uh, uh, you know, when they do get jacked up or in a heightened, uh, you know, get into that fight or flight thing themselves. They have a difficulty coming back down. Uh, they don't, they're not empathetic. They can't, you know, read where they're at with uh, the other person. Uh, in terms of communication skills. And I mean, that's the thing about, I mean, any group of people in an employment, you got a whole wide variety of people yeah. who have different experiences and different skills. And, and some people bring a lot more into the profession than others. And so, um, so what do you do? Cause you manage police officers too. I mean, do you, do you like help them or do you sort of, shunt them off to a desk job or something or what do you do my dog wants out so i'm gonna let my dog outside if you don't mind we'll take a break here for a second so i don't know if you want to get into this pat but i have made episodes about the case that was i believe in minnesota in which it was a famous case in which a police officer had tragically killed shot and killed a passenger in a car do you, yeah, do you, do you know this familiar. case yeah because it relates to what we're talking about because my hypothesis and i you know i hope you know the situation and can speak to it better than i can but but from there were two narratives that were going on in our country politically one was that support our police officers and this guy the you know person who was killed uh, shouldn't have been reaching for his wallet the way that he did and maybe even had a gun, that kind of thing. Um, 
Do you remember his name? The 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 two guys' names. <laughs> I I don't I don't I forget remember. their names, but yeah, it was a couple years ago. Philando Castile was the man's in the the passenger's name, and the police officer's name was I forget. But the um, uh, and then on the other side, you had people who were like, ah, oh, just another cop killing a black guy for for shooting a black guy for for no reason. Well. I listened to this podcast called 74 Seconds, and uh, which it was a total, whole podcast just about the Flando Castile case. And the 74 Seconds was 74 seconds from the time uh, the police officer left the car to the point where he had shot Flando Castile. So they, they looked into the reports and the, the videos, and they, went, they actually saw videos that the public hasn't been able to see and the, you know certain dash cam videos and whatnot. And... Uh, they also looked at past dash cam videos of this police officer in other uh, high intensity situations. And my hypothesis was not popular in that it didn't align with either side of the political spectrum in that what I saw was the possibility that this guy had some sort of PTSD or some kind of anxiety condition because there was this other case, this chase case where the you know a number of police officers are chasing some perp um is that the term perp we don't use it suspect <laughs> suspect or citizen or whatever chasing yeah. a citizen and they uh they're you know it's some sort of dangerous situation and the police officer gets back into his car after they apprehend this guy apprehend is that a good word arrest arrest and um they uh, you, you you can't see him on the dash cam, but you can hear him. And for like 15 minutes, he's... <gasps> and his his buddies are coming up to him and saying, are, are you are you okay? Do you, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> like 10 minutes, his body is, you know, freaking out. And I know enough about PTSD to know that either he suffers from previously being traumatized and this was this somehow triggered it or this event traumatized him and he had like a massive biological reaction. And then fast forward like a month or maybe even weeks or something. And then this Flanda Castile thing happens. He walks up to the door and he says um, something like, uh, I need to see your drive. I need to see your license. And he's he's primed because he thinks that maybe this guy is an armed robbery suspect or something. So he's already worried. Like this guy might be armed and he might shoot me. You know, it's it's like uh, he fits the description in his mind. You know, you could argue as to whether or not the description made any sense. But anyway, that's what's in his head. So he is already sort of primed and triggered a little bit. And then Flandau Castile reaches for his wallet, apparently, and is trying to get his license. And in that time, the police officer basically has a mini freakout and and shoots. Now, the legality aside, the, the courts decided that it was reasonable use of force or whatever because there was a a reasonable police officer would have reasonably concluded that there was a reasonable risk and therefore it was justified to shoot. So the, the, the police officer was um, deemed such in a court of law. Okay, fine. That's a sort of a constitutional thing. It's sort of like a, a, a how we interpret police force thing, you know, um, but, uh, and that's for another time, or maybe you have an opinion about that, but 
But what I ask you is, does it make sense that maybe this guy uh, might have benefited from some kind of assessment and treatment regarding his trauma reactions to high intense police moments? So I don't know enough about that specific case. I don't know enough of the details to comment uh, on that case uh, specifically. But what I would say um, more generally is that um, not across the country, not all police departments uniformly do a good job of evaluating uh, the personnel that work for them. Um, and then you layer on top of that, uh, collective bargaining rights and contracts that sort of determine, uh, when and it, when, if, and how a department can intervene, uh, with, a an individual on their department. Cause you're also talking about that person's livelihood and their, the way they make their living. Uh, and so it can get super complicated in terms of, you know, like say I, I come into work and I see somebody like, there's not something right there. Um, Or you hear a report from another officer who was on the scene that says, you know, this new officer had kind of a freak out in this moment and I'm worried about him. Like, what could you do in a situation like that? So most police departments have a a fitness for duty policy somewhere in there. And it, it can be very different from department to department. But like... If I came in and I uh, and you worked for me and and uh, I could see physical evidence that uh, things weren't good for you and I could articulate that, I could um, you know have you uh, evaluated uh, in terms of fitness for duty or if you had alcohol in your breath and your eyes were watery, you know we could we could say if I could articulate and the the standard is sort of. Um, more likely than not. Uh, so 51%. Um, Does that ever happen? Do you ever have to? It happens, yeah. Yeah, most of the time, um, I think the, the most common uh, thing, just like probably in any profession, is uh, people who get uh, in trouble with substance abuse, you know, and so you have people who are self-medicating, dealing with their stress, you know, uh, in an unhealthy way with, alcohol or drugs or I mean some of your some of the officers are vets right and might have been traumatized during actions in war and then they become police officers they're uh, haven't been treated and they're stressed out and medicating because of that I I mean that's for sure yeah I mean I think I would venture to guess that uh, most police departments across the country um, recruit and hire veterans and we've had two uh, long recent, you know, violent wars. And so, um, you know, some people come in, I think, uh, uh, come in with some stuff that, uh, you know, maybe they, they brought with them from their experiences in the war. And, uh, we, you know, we, uh, during intake and hiring, we try to, I mean, people go through a psychological exam, and they go through a lie detector and they go through, I mean, they're evaluated as thoroughly as humanly possible, but totally, but I, I could imagine. So just, you know, I just want to, uh, I guess get your opinion specifically on my opinion on that case with that police officer where he sh- shot Flano Castile. You're not familiar with the case exactly, but can, can you imagine a situation in which a police officer, 
or have you ever seen a situation where a police officer seems to react very strongly to trauma and intense situations to the point where they either are suffering themselves because they're very distressed, uh, much more so than the average police officer, or they don't know how to act and they might react out of fear in a situation where um, uh, caution is is more, um, you know, a better action to take, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's certainly possible. Um, I've seen uh, over the years many odd responses people you know uh having to be corrected by the uh, uh because of the way they dealt with the situation that didn't seem like real reasonable um like too aggressive too aggressive or not aggressive you know not assertive enough okay uh there's a balance there um you know they they've they've uh um interviewed uh, people who've murdered cops and one of the common, you know, why'd you kill that cop? One of the common responses is because I knew I could. Hmm. Uh, and you know, as somebody, you know, they're in my way. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to go to jail. And so, uh, um, and people do an evaluation of whether or not they think they could get away with it. And they do. Is that ever happened to you? Someone uh, ever tried to do anything like that to you? Yeah, I mean, I, you can't be in the work in the line of work for um, as long as I've been, and not been in fights and had physical confrontations. And, Do you mind sharing one? Well, um, well, I can tell a story. Uh, many many years ago, I responded to a. It was a domestic violence. The woman was cut up. Her boyfriend. Um, the call was that her boyfriend, there was a domestic and her boyfriend had assaulted her. And, and I, when I arrived, she was in the parking lot, uh, in, you know, uh, in distress and hysterical and, uh, covered in blood. And I went up to talk to her and there's, you know, there's some tactics that as a young, uh, office, you know, a young law enforcement professional that could have gone better for me. And, uh, but when I uh, got up to her, one of the first things you want to do is, uh, you know, we don't go to calls like that alone. And I know, um, in this case, I happen to be the first one to get there, but I know others are, are driving to my location and I wanted to get a description of, uh, the suspect in this case, uh, what he looked like. So as they're coming in, they might see him cause, uh, he had, it was reported he had left on foot. And I asked her, I remember this vividly, I asked her, what does he look like? And she pointed over my shoulder. So like, uh, you know, I was talking to her face to face and she pointed her hand over my shoulder and I turned around and he was right there. Like right on you? Yeah, he had. He was in the process of throwing a punch uh, at me. And so the fight started right there with, very, you know, and, you know, as we talked about communication skills and all of those things, you, did, you know, I mean, there was no time to talk to this guy. He had I, I decided. Just, uh, why would you, why would a guy do that? I mean. Well, I figured out a little bit about what, what may have motivated him. Um, he, it turns out that he uh, was dealing cocaine. This is very early. So this is back during the crack 
years. Heyday. Yeah, so think colors and you know, Crips and Bloods and all that stuff. Yeah, you were a police officer during all that. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, and she had flushed his cocaine down the toilet because she was mad at him, and that's okay. what led to the conflict. So I think the, the dude was uh, just irrational, and, um, and yeah, I, just, I don't know. I mean, uh, he's just probably so a low-level dealer. Uh, he's probably leveraged to the hill to get that, you know, that product. And she just put him behind by, you know, or he could have been, you know, I mean, his life could have been at risk for. Great. uh, Makes sense that you'd be upset about that. Let's add like potentially being charged or even killed by a police officer for, for trying to assault them. You know, it just boggles the mind as to what you think you're going to accomplish, you know? Uh, okay, so tell me about the fight. Like, what what went down? Did you guys get on the ground and roll around? Well, or? I think this uh, I think this can kind of tie into a little bit of what you're talking about. I mean, I'm full on in I'm in survival mode at that point. I mean, I don't. This you is know, you first... can talk about all the tactics and training and <laughs> yeah. and everything you want, but uh, you know, uh, his fist glanced off the side of my head, and I you went for the balls. I went, well, I went, I went into full on fight mode. And so it was a brawl. I mean, and there was no finesse or, you know, I didn't use my college style. Yeah. It was essentially a, you know, a, uh, a snot knocker. And uh, (laughs) And what happened? Like, well, I mean, uh, he was smaller than me, so I was able to sort of get him under control. Like on the ground, you got him on a, yeah. So I, if I remember right, I, um, sort of pushed him away and then just stayed on him. And he, he was backing up while I was pushing and his feet hit a curb. And so then we just went down and I was on top of him. And, oh, okay. uh, and, and then, then you, I, uh, so you, uh, and I pinned him down and, you know, um, probably a knee or an elbow in, in there. And, uh, and then at some point others arrived to sort of help me get his arms behind him and into custody. So, so I know before we started recording, I said I wasn't going to talk about all the like horrible stories that we know about each other from college and whatnot. But I will tell one story, if you don't mind. I won't go into too much detail, but I wrestled when I was in high school. And so in college, I, you know, at parties and stuff, I would say, you know, who wants to wrestle? You yeah, know? you wrestled me a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we would turn on other people, too. <laughs> yeah. Like you were telling a story about how we tackled a guy into a couch and broke it. And... uh so I don't know why I'm equating you with this, with this perp, uh, if you will, um, with our college days, but somehow that image is coming to mind. Like, I, I would like to think that I, my training of you in college somehow, yeah, somehow you did, you contributed. Yeah. It kept me sharp. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's pretty scary. So you were, uh, a, a younger police officer at that. Yeah. Point. It's probably one or two years on. Wow. Something like that. I mean, I mean so I- just out of nowhere, boom. Like you're just faced with someone who's trying to rip your head off. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that like, it's not personal. Uh, and I've learned over the years, it's not personal when I go to, you know, like when I was on, on patrol, I'm a uniform and I represent, uh, like in some cases, uh, they see me and that's the guy that's going to take them to jail and they don't want to go to jail. And so, um, they just react. 
Yeah. And they don't, it's not, uh, and I think you have to get into that mindset to be successful to a certain extent. I think people who take the job personally, like when, you know, and they, they get in this, you know, I've seen this happen where an officer will, you know, take something that's said to them personally. And then all of a sudden you get that escalation again that we were talking about. Uh, and I'm yeah. not going to say that's never happened to me, but, but I've learned that's not personal. I'm a symbol when I'm in that uniform and, uh, you know, and I'm representing, um, uh, law and order and people who aren't following the law and not behaving in order or, you know, I'm, we're, there's some antagonism there. Yeah. There's, uh, opposing forces. And so, uh, it's very common to get spit on and to, to be called all sorts of names, to have your life threatened, your family threatened. And, and for the most part, all of that stuff is just like in the moment people are in crisis and they're venting or, uh, you know, uh, or freaking out cause yeah. there's, they don't want to go back to prison or, they're worried about, you know, their livelihood or their freedom and whatnot. So do you, do you have to train other people to have that mindset of not taking it personal? Well, I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Some people you can, uh, some people you can't. And, and just before the dog had to go out, um, <laughs> you would ask me, what do we do? Well, people who, if it's very clear, from the beginning that that's not working, they don't get to be police officers. Um, well, I, um, I can only speak from my experience. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, there's a, you know, thousands of police agencies in this country. And so, um, I think, uh, you get a variety of different, um, managing styles. Yeah. And criteria for what's acceptable. I mean, um, you know, think about Mayberry, Illinois or whatever, you know, where, uh, Barney Fife, uh, a small little town like that, you know, standards aren't probably the same as they are in a, a large metropolitan city police department. Um, and pay for, uh, police officers across the country is widely divergent. Um, this region, and I think people should be happy about this, uh, treats law enforcement for the most part as professionals and they get paid a, a, a professional living wage. Can you give a range for the listeners to understand? Um, just, you know, some are shy of six figures. Okay. Yeah. Starting, you know, maybe in the, uh, it's pretty competitive cause it's hard to find cops right now. Um, can you, when you get raises, can you go up into like a, a much more than that or? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the range is for like chief of police or uh, a sheriff in this area. You're looking from 160 to 190, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, and then back off 10% for each rank on, on down to officers. And so. that's including the fact that the Pacific Northwest is one of the most high standard of living areas in the world and houses, uh, even in smaller towns are at a minimum, a half a million dollars. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, whereas you go to, I was in Kansas recently and an expensive house there was like $250,000, you know? So, um, uh, so that's a factor in, in terms of, uh, you know, your pay. Well, I think I'm, 
on that topic, I think a lot of the the officers that work in Seattle and in the metropolitan area here, they don't live here. They can't afford to live here. They they live south, way south or way north or way east, and they commute in because. Right. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. But there's part parts of the country, and probably parts of the world, since you have like international, um, where you, you're not paying a professional wage. And, and then this is very much an area where you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you don't pay, uh, your law enforcement enough to, you know, live and, and all of that, I think that's where you start seeing corruption and, and, uh, that types of, you know, things where, because you got power, right? I mean, you're given, uh, uh, your police department has power to detain people and, to you know, so, um, so if you're struggling with bills, there's a bigger temptation to sure. give in to corruption influences. Have you ever seen any corruption firsthand uh, that you want to talk about? <laughs> um, I don't think corruption is a huge problem in this part of the country. Okay. Um, there's different views on that. Um, there I've seen over the years, uh, uh we have gratuity policies like i can't take a cup of coffee i can't um uh take a free lunch i can none of that yeah. uh, and i always say uh you know i thank you all the same i really appreciate it but i we have rules and i can't take so I bus- have, so a, i have to pay a business will be like hey i got this for you because they want you to come back more often and respond to calls to their business more right. quickly or something right it's very common okay um it's uh, very common. I'm sure some of them are just being nice. I mean, you know, I mean, right. Some people just want to be nice to police officers, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, uh, I think there's several things going on. Um, I think they want to be nice. I think in some cases, depending on the neighborhood, they like that the police are there. Um, uh, just because uh, I think things, security and safety is better when two cops are sitting you have a lunch in your restaurant. Um, and then there's the unspoken agreement that occurs between two human beings. When you do something for somebody else, there is sort of that implied contract that if, right. if you're ever in a position to, to help me out, it'd be super rude if you didn't. And that's the problem, right? That's the problem with, mm. uh, and it, you've heard slippery slope, right? It starts with little things and pretty soon, um, that sense of entitlement grows and you got a pro a real big problem on your hand. Interesting. Uh, and anybody susceptible. Uh, so your question, does that go on around here? Yeah. Um, but I think at least my opinion is that in this area, um, that is non-normative. I think you get towards the East coast and you know, I mean, those, those what is acceptable in terms of that changes depending on where you are around the country. Uh, so did you see What's that? One of my favorite movies, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it has Edward Norton and it has, um, Angelina Jolie's dad <laughs> and it has, uh, Colin Farrell in it. And it's about like New York cops and, Edward Norton's trying to be the good guy and there's like corruption and do you, do you know the movie? It's one of my um, favorite movies and I can't remember the name of the movie. 
Um, I just figure a police officer would just see, you know, every movie that's like centered around police officer. Yeah, I don't really like, I, maybe I'm different. I don't like cop movies. Really? Why? I mean, I guess I don't really like therapy movies. Right. I mean, well, like, like Goodwill Hunting. Was that, I mean, you into that? Well, there, there's been a fair amount of TV shows and movies and depictions and stuff. And um, I find that they're often so horribly misrepresenting that I, I can't watch it. Or if it's, if it's extremely accurate, then I'm bored because I'm like, I do this at work every day. Right. I think that's exactly how I feel. Really? And I think more than that, I think it causes, it creates like, uh, one of the things you thought, uh, you suggested we would talk about on the podcast is like common misconceptions about cops. And I think a lot of those are created by television shows. Really? Um, you know, a lot of people think, why didn't they just shoot the gun out of his hand? And, and my answer to that is like, have you seen me at the range? I mean, it, that is a really hard thing to do that. That is so hard to do that. Like they had old West shows where, you know, Annie Oakley did those, you know, sort of shots. Uh, you can't teach people to do that. No. Um, I've never even heard of that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. What other misconceptions? Um, like if you watch CSI or any of those things, what always bothers me is uh, like they'll get um, a sketch or a picture of the dude and then, okay, run it through facial recognition and you'll see a computer in the back a background sort of spooling through faces and, and three seconds later, bam, we got him, you know? And then like that little thing there, that's like the hard part, right? getting a, a blurry image and figuring out who that guy is. That means, you know, that's done by taking that picture around the neighborhood and spreading it around. There is no magic computer that identifies people from pictures. It's that kind of procedural stuff that, uh, you know, they're getting DNA off of everything. And people want DNA now, like they, without any concept of like how expensive that is to process DNA, you know, if, um, somebody's car gets broken in and like, you know, get search for fibers, you know, that type of thing. And, um, but it creates, I think an expectation in people's minds that, um, you know, that as far as burden of proof, you know, well, you didn't have DNA, you couldn't have done it. Whereas, you know, eyewitness has been sort of the the standard approach uh, to good evidence for many, many years before we invented DNA. And so, um, I don't know. And it, and it just frustrates me, you know, the, the tropes and the cliches where, you know, all cops are, you know, divorced and alcoholic and, you know, broken human beings and, (laughs) and, uh, and every captain's an asshole. Yeah. And every like, you know, that captain on aliens who, you know, cracks under pressure. That's the whole um, <laughs> trope for captains. So yeah, I, it to me. Uh, and then if it is a good show and it's realistic, it's like work. And then I'm like, I don't. Yeah. You know. But my wife loves all of those shows. So oh. yeah, she watches a lot of them on her own. So. So it's a pretty interesting political environment. I mean, you've been a police officer twenty eight years. So uh, you've seen different landscapes politically over the over the years, right? There's um, you were so you were policing in the '90s when 
we actually got a handle on crime and actually overall uh, reduced rates of violent crime and crime overall, right? So that that must have felt good back then. Well, I think uh, the statistics I'm aware of show crime has been falling pretty steadily since its peak in the early 80s. Right. So, so that, I mean, so you were a part of that, you know. Yeah. And, and, and didn't Clinton have something to do with, like, increasing police forces around the United States? Yeah, he did uh, um, cops grants, uh, which hired a lot of uh, police officers around the country. Uh, and then, and then the the big thing when I first started police work, the big controversial event of that time was the Rodney King. Oh, right. Um, uh, and so, and then OJ, right? Yeah. Well, OJ was more, I think, uh, uh, sensational. You know, I mean, it was a very interesting, fascinating. Uh, crime and uh but rodney king was like like that was the big yeah that was like uh i mean i think you know you remember video cameras back then they were like shoulder yeah like i had one in college and i I think i have some footage of you yeah so uh so getting footage of cops in action was pretty early on yeah uh just as those cameras became portable Did those guys know they were being filmed I don't think they had any idea. Which is no. bizarre because cameras were like, you know, humongous boom boxes on your shoulder. And so it's strange that they wouldn't have known. But anyway, what did you think about all that when it happened with Rodney King? Well, um, I, I thought it was unfortunate that it triggered, like, I mean, L.A. blew up after that. It was uh, unbelievable to watch that community uh, immolate following that. Yeah. Um, uh, I think my general feeling is that police departments and police officers have been getting better for a long, long time and getting more professional, more training, more equipment, and just more awareness. And I think the other and thing... And less, less beady, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... Uh, you know, I, don't, I, I sort of uh, have two minds on this. Oh. On one hand, uh, I understand what was going on with those guys, right? They got, that was a knock, that was a, a slobber knocker, right? That was a knockdown, drag out fight. And, then, and the media showed part of it, but they, you know, they focused on the, I think the parts where um, the LA uh, officers were beaten on Rodney King and, and, and I understand why they did that. The The guy uh, was clearly not putting up a fight at that point, and they continued to beat on him, and there's no excuse oh, for that. So you understand why the media was focusing on that part of it. Right. But but until you've been in a, a fight where you think you're going to die or you're, tr- you know, I mean, and it's just... What was the precursor to all that? It was like a chase. Uh, it's many years ago, so I, I may be getting some of these. And then was there? My a- recollection is that it was a, a chase, uh, and that they tried to. They had like this ancient taser device back then. It was a stun gun or something they called, it, and they tried to hit him with that. And and you know what's unexcusable is sort of the. Um, some of the racial language those guys were using on the radio afterwards and some of that stuff. So I don't, I'm not trying to make excuses, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is I've been in that place where, you know, you've been in a fight with somebody, um, 
You're freaking out. You're, you're the the yeah. team is freaking out themselves. And you're trying to control all the chemicals that are flowing through your body, and you're trying to deal with your own fight or flight. And you know, and and sometimes that is like the 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 water in the toilet. It just starts the you know it just starts going south. Has that and, ever happened to you? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about. Yeah, that. yeah. I, I mean, because for I, the I, most part, I've been able to maintain. Uh, control and composure over I mean, the years. I, it's happened to me. I mean, I'm not a police officer, but I have absolutely at times, especially in physical situations, just just lost my mind and that did things that if was on video camera would be extremely humiliating. You know, uh, it's we're human beings. Police officers are human beings, and so uh, uh, I'm not. Again, it's not an excuse, but. Uh, but having so it's not right either no. right i mean what happened to him and i don't uh, you know you're sort of asking i'm you're asking me to explain what it what it's like to be a cop and so i'm kind of giving you the cop perspective totally yeah i just want to say i mean it you know being treated like that wasn't acceptable so, then so correct me if i'm wrong but they should have at so some physical force was justified up to a certain point, and then they should have turned it off and cuffed him and put him in the car and right. not used a bunch of N-words on the radio. Right. And then everything would have been fine. It would have been a normal case. Right. Um, but they got triggered. And two, you know, my perception of people's analysis of the situation is you have a, you have a system, an organization that basically upholds and justifies and protects uh, police officers who take bad actions. It's not like the whole police department is happy that that happened, but at the very least, you know, you protect your own, you have systems in place to, to preserve people's jobs or something, you know, in the face of this kind of stuff. And uh, because the, the thing I'm just, you know, I don't know. And I don't know if you know, but the thinking is like, well, if that guy goes down, then there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on a lot of things. And I don't want that. And so I'm going to protect this guy, even though I don't really agree with him, but I don't want, the public to have control over us, you know, because I want to be able to be free to, you know, act in the way that I, f I want to be free essentially to act like I want to. And I, and I believe I act ethically uh, on a daily basis, but I, but I'm guessing if there was scrutiny, they, you know, the public would find something to complain about. That's the system of power and control and the checks and balances between uh, what, can happen to someone if they do cross that line. And when you, as an officer, feel like you can do anything, then, you know, it, it's more likely that something like this would happen. And these things apparently were happening all the time in L.A. And this was just one of the ones that was caught on camera, you know. So yeah, and so I don't disagree with some of that. I, I, I think what happens is um, what the way police work was done in the fifties and the way it was done in the sixties, the way, you know, like your father's time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what police departments are a f reflection of their communities to a large extent. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, that, uh, and, and these communities have changed a lot over the last 30 years. I mean, you think about Seattle, how many people have moved here, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years and attitudes about what's okay and what's not okay have changed over the years. And, um, you know, so when you come into a police department and you're a 
21 year old uh, college graduate and you know nothing you're taught how to do that police work by the people who've been there before and so for me in the early 90s it was people who had been doing police work in the 80s and 70s interesting that that um taught you how to survive out on the streets and how to do police work and and so i think um, so so things are getting more professional and more buttoned up and less problematic over time is that what you're saying as as culture and trainers change over time well i, I don't know exactly what you're saying well my point is that there's a culture within any police department that um at the deputy level that de- that largely determines how what conduct is acceptable and unacceptable uh and that's trained to the new people who come in uh and i think back then that there uh, what when a police department goes um when things go poorly for a police department there's a gap between what the policies and what the leadership are saying should happen and culturally was accepted by, uh, and, and you could have these gaps in police departments. And I, I mean, if you read the Rampart study and if you're interested in this stuff, I would, you should be able to find it online. It's what's uh, the Rampart study. Uh, it's a, a corruption scandal within a, a, a police department. You can kind of see it's pretty fascinating reading and you can kind of see how, how, uh, things can go wrong within a police department when, when, so, sorry, are you saying it's possible that in the L.A. with when it comes to Rodney King that that on the deputy level, even though it wasn't policy to beat guys, you know, um, after it's easy to cuff them and put them in the back of a car, that on the deputy level, there might have been a acceptable uh, notion in their culture around if some guy has ruined your evening with a chase and with not complying and with striking back at police officers, it's it's okay to give him his just dessert by like giving him a few other smacks with the uh, stick. I, I wouldn't agree with that. I, I think what I'm, what I'm saying is that that culture would have been more like, and, and again, speaking in generalities, there are people down there, are probably great cops during that time. And, uh, the culture was like, it, um, if you break the law, we're coming to get you. And we're not going to give up and we're going to chase you to the ends of the earth. And if you get out of your car and run, we're going to chase you on foot. And if you swing at us, we're going to kick your ass. Right. Um, and, you know, so that was the, the, the thought process. We're going to get you. Uh, um, and you got to remember that, that at that time, L.A. is big crime problems, yeah. you know, Shootings in neighborhoods and kids getting, you know, I mean, just the yeah. worst imaginable conditions in many of those neighborhoods. Right. It's interesting. The way I framed it is it pretty much in my head exactly the same, but you framed it differently, which is um, is is more, I guess, of the lived experience of a police officer. Right. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but it also kind of makes sense because it's like, look, we have to send a message to the citizens that it's not worth uh, putting up a fight. You know, once we've got you on our sites, just stop, get in the car, we'll take you downtown, we'll treat you nice, everything. If, but if you come at us with violence and you, you know, lead us on a wild goose chase and put lives in danger, 
like it's on, you know, we're, and we, not because we want to punish you, but we want to kind of let it be known that, uh, this is not going to go unnoticed and it, we're going to try to provide some deterrent to it. If, cause especially if the legal system doesn't necessarily acknowledge the, um, severity of these kinds of things, you know, uh, like for example, there are kids in LA right now who will, try to get famous for 15 minutes by going by stealing a car and going on a chase and getting on helicopter cameras. And when I saw that, I thought, how in the world would that make any sense? I mean, but, but from my understanding, the consequences to that crime isn't, aren't that severe. And so they can get their 15 minutes of fame and, you know, maybe spend a month in jail or have a $2,000 fine or something. That would be highly unusual a month for that. What do you mean? It might be a couple days. Oh, a couple days. It might days. be just the arrest after they get caught and then the weekend and then they're out on Monday. So. Yeah. So it's like, to me, that there's something wrong with that. You know, it's, it, it's like if you're going to put a like a bunch of... Because driving that erratic, you could kill someone. You know, you could kill my mother. You could... For sure. You, you know, and it's like kill yourself and it, or you could at the very least just damage someone's car, which is just, just so dumb. And so I'm thinking like, uh, as a police officer, like, okay, this guy's putting up a fight that he might not even get charged for that. He might only get charged for these other things or the consequences of this aren't going to be that big of a deal. And, and, uh, it just seems like the system should have a bigger response to, running away from the police, you know, like the, the consequences to running or the consequences to taking a swing at a police officer to me should just be, you know, off the charts. It's sort of like when you're playing football or basketball or something, it's like, it's one thing to foul. It's another thing when you take a swing at the ref, you know what I mean? Like the, the league takes a very, um, swift and severe action against people who takes, and that's why, uh, coaches and players almost never take swings at refs, you know? Well, I think think most, if you polled them, I think most law enforcement officers would tell you that that, uh, that the consequences for swinging at the police are not super severe. Right. So, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, so So if I was a community of police officers and I'm, and I'm trying to say to the community, like, okay, you guys know that the okay, you community, you know, if you take a swing at us, it's not that big of a deal to you legally, but it will be a big deal because we're going to respond. You know, we, we will respond with our own consequence, I guess is the thing. Yeah. And I think maybe a little bit, again, we're talking about uh, a police department in the nineties um, where the informal leaders of that police department learned police work in the eighties and seventies. And so, you know, the world has changed a lot, you know, since then it's changed a lot since, uh, and we know more like, um, responding to somebody who's out of control with, you know, uh, raising your level of, uh, aggression isn't always the right way to do it. And I think we're starting as a profession to, to, uh, evolve and figure out better ways to deal with Including having stronger legal consequences for taking a swig at a police officer, in my opinion. Well, I, I should clarify, uh, um, simple assault, at least in Washington state, um, is a, is a, um, it's like assault three, it, uh, assault four. It's a, a misdemeanor, uh, and, uh, swinging at a, I think it's a 
law enforcement and bus drivers and um, uh, there's a couple other categories I have to look it up, but uh, is a class C felony. So technically there are more severe penalties, but I think um, a lot of people would say that that, that getting uh, that charge, you'd have to be severely, I mean, like if somebody just took a pop at me and I got a bruise or whatever that that's never, that's not going to get charged around here that way. It'll be, Why? it'll just go assault for, cause that's, that's the way it is. Uh, a lot of judges and a, a lot of uh, prosecutors feel like getting injured, arresting people is just part of the job. And there's a line in there somewhere between where that's, uh, not part of the job and becomes an assault. And, uh, that doesn't so, seem fair to me. It's, I mean, it, it, uh, I, I would like it to be different based on my limited knowledge of the legal system. Yeah. Uh, cause for me, for example, I've had my run in with the police in my college days and never did it occur to me to take a pop at a police officer, you know, like it didn't even cross my mind. Um, uh, could it have helped my situation? I suppose I, in a couple of situations I could have taken a swing and ran or something, but it just didn't occur to me because I just don't think that that's okay. You know, it, there's, there's a, there's a line I have and you know, that's my line. And so I, I don't, I just, I just don't have a lot of sympathy. Now in certain circumstances, it can be different. You know, it's like, um, <laughs> uh, do you remember Blaine, Blaine from a college? Oh yeah. 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 He was in, New Orleans, and they have a completely different uh, police uh, law enforcement situation in New Orleans. It's under some like French common law or something, uh, and this you know legacy different like constable or a marshal yeah, or something, some yeah. kind of weird old system yeah. that according to him, and he was just walking down the street, and this plainclothes police officer, without identifying himself as a cop, uh, just tried to apprehend and arrest Blaine and Blaine wasn't even doing anything wrong. And so Blaine fought back, you know, just, you know, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put my hands against the wall. And so, you know, and then, then the police officer really laid into him, cuffed him, said, I am a cop. And he ended up in, some sort of holding cell situation for a few days or something. Really? <laughs> yeah. You never heard this story? <laughs> no. He couldn't even, he couldn't even call out. Like he was in like some kind of just sort of some sort of a tank with a bunch of other, uh, perps, if you will. I love that word. Um, but, um, that's kind of an East coast word. I think. <laughs> um, so I don't know why I'm bringing that up. Why am I bringing that up? Um, I, I guess what I'm bringing up is like, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about like professionalism and about training and stuff. Do you, at, you know, the big hot button topic of today is black lives matter and racism, black, black, white relations, you know, and, um, do, do, I'm just imagining that the day to day work as a police officer, uh, there's not a ton of talk about it, but is there, is there any talk about that kind of stuff that's happening? Well, one of the things that's fundamental to any police department to be effective is legitimacy. And it, um, if you're policing a community that doesn't consider the, your department legitimate, um, for what a variety of reasons and, and the reasons stated by the black lives matter movement certainly are, 
or valid reasons, then I think you're going to continue to have serious problems, uh, in your police department. Um, you, to be effective and safe as a, a police officer, when you, you know, you have to get some level of compliance from the people who are, um, you know, and we've just spent a lot of time talking about people who run and people who fight and, and that type of thing. But for the most part, I mean, uh, for the most part, most of our contacts, people do what we ask them to do. We turn the lights on, people pull over. And, and when we say, Hey, I like to have a word with you, people generally stop and, and, uh, talk to you. Uh, and so, I think that there have been um, too many unfortunate issues uh, between uh, in neighborhoods of color, between the law, law enforcement and those folks. Uh, um, instances where people either were trained properly enough, or uh, they didn't have the right equipment, or they weren't the right person to be in law enforcement. And those things absolutely need to be fixed. I, um, uh, you know, I have two boys and, um, if, you know, I lost one of my kids to the police department, I can only, I can't imagine how, um, difficult that is for those families. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is that police, uh, police departments have to get better, um, at, uh, training, they have to get better at, um, and, and this again is a general comment. Uh, we have to get better at, um, identifying people who shouldn't be cops. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Cause it seems like a lot of the, whenever I look into any of these cases where there's some high profile media case that, that as when I look further into it, that the police officer that did this act that is, you know, in the media is anomalous to the police officers around them, you know, like, like the police officer who shot Flano Castile, there was another police officer right there. And according to his statements, I don't know how he feels about it, but he said um, he wasn't alarmed at all by Flano Castile's actions. You know, he, he, in fact, you can even see him in the camera and he, he never draws his weapon. You know, he's, he's like, why, you know, why are you, why are you pulling your gun out? You can kind of see him like you're pulling your gun out. How come? And why'd you shoot? You know, like it seems like in, in the, the case with, um, that one guy who shot the guy in the hotel, uh, uh hallway, do you know that case as well? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, one. it's it's some kind of trigger happy guy with a AR. It was like his own AR-15 that he brought from home or something, and he's telling a guy to get down on the ground, and he's yelling, he's barking all of these. It's all on camera. He's barking all these commands at this guy because something like an airsoft gun was fat, was seen, and so they thought he might be armed, and they're telling him to come out of the hotel room and you know, get down on your knees and then like, you know, let me see your ID and like, keep your hands up. And like the, the guy is crying that, you know, the, the citizen is crying and he's crawling on all fours and he doesn't know what to do. And he gets some sort of conflicting message and he reaches for his pocket. Cause I think he thinks he needs to give, um, his ID and the guy pops him a few times, kills him. Oh. Um, white guy victim and just disgusting. Right. And you're just thinking would the average police officer do such a thing like that? Well, know? I, uh, whenever I see one of those, 
Um, I got a lot of emotions. So, um, in, uh, I'm, you know, I have to work in this profession and, and I know that when one of those things happens, it just makes it harder. It makes it harder. That legitimacy thing I'm talking about gets, uh, that I was talking about earlier gets, we get it slightly less legitimate every time one of those things happens. But I also feel, um, when I, and I, I can't imagine what the families that have had to deal with those things have gone through. Um, and I, I mean, what an awful, awful experience and, and the damage it does to, you know, people's trust in government is awful. And, and, you know, uh, somebody put those people into that job. Um, and so, and I, and we've had people that, that we've trained that haven't worked out and we've wondered afterwards, how did they, how did we not see that, you know, at the beginning? And so, um, yeah, I think the, about, I think about it in my, my profession too, we were, cause we're always doing the same thing. You know, we have this whole ethical responsibility for, we call it gatekeeping in terms of allowing uh, people through the gate into the profession where they can, uh, help human beings or harm them. But in my profession, the harm is like, uh, you know, on an, on a, the, the sort of a typical situation is the therapist is um, unethical, doesn't listen well, um, uses therapy for their own devices, and, and the client just doesn't like the therapist and fires the therapist or something, you know? Right. Uh, in your profession, a bad apple is like these situations. It's, it, you know, I can't yeah. imagine the, because I have the anxiety myself. I, I'm a professor. I'm a supervisor. I used to be program director. I was in charge of gatekeeping hundreds of people, and it would I would lie awake just terrified that I was going to let someone through that was going to harm the public. And but again, the consequences isn't someone getting killed. I can't imagine what it's like to be a manager in a police force. Well, and then you know, I think about. I mean. Think about what I would go through if that if I made a mistake on the job, like, and something awful like that happened. I, I guess it'd be the like uh, it would be similar to, um, at least again, just for me, um, if if you were to be texting on your phone and you hit a kid on a bike or something, and I mean, you got to live with that for the rest of your life. And so I, I just all the way around, it's just so tragic and uh, damaging. And, and then to see communities just start, um, you know, I mean, it triggers these protests and just deep, deep, uh, emotions that tap into. So, so I have a solution to that, by the way, and and maybe I'm just completely ignorant of what's happening, but my solution is police departments need to have a better PR person you know, to, they need to they need to have someone, and maybe and I'm sure there are police, and I think Seattle and you know Pacific Northwest, uh, as you call them, agencies, I think are better than other agencies in other areas. But uh, you got to have someone that steps forward and says that was wrong. He, you know, we're going to look into it, and and if we find that the narrative that you have is correct, that this guy was in the wrong, like he's going to be, he's not he's not only going to be. Uh, punished by being fired, but 
we're gonna and we're gonna involve prosecution, and he's going to full, you know, feel the full extent of the law, and we're gonna support that because we are on the side of good. We are on the side of you, the public. You know, now if this guy, you know, if it comes out that it was justified, then you know it's a different story. But but there just needs to be a stronger the, the reaction that police, and maybe it's this professionalism getting in the way or something. There seems to be like this. Very anemic response. Well, there's a lot of money at stake. I mean, there's a lot of money at stake. And so, what do you, you mean? know, well, attorneys are involved, right? I mean, there's going to be a lawsuit. If if we make a mistake and somebody loses their life, there's going to be You're talking about millions of dollars at that point. And so, so there's like this buttoned up, like, well, we don't know what's happening. Well, and- the thing is, you don't know what's happening. You don't... Uh, um, uh, or, or at the very least, like what you were saying, which is like, you know, if this happened as, as was described, you know, like forget about specific incidents, you know, like maybe you have to be real. Maybe the attorneys are like, don't, don't say anything out of line. Cause you're just opening the door to losing a bunch of money. But in general, there's, there needs to be like a stronger voice from police representatives who are saying things that you're saying, which is like, we care. And of course the, the premises of black lives matter are valid and yeah, we need to do better with training and yeah, we need to be, uh, we need to have better practices and maybe better systems in terms of getting rid of the bad apples. Cause sometimes we can identify them, but our hands are tied because of certain union systems and like, yes, we can do better. Like let's, let's all, let's all work together on this rather than an us versus them situation that seems to be uh, happening. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think I've seen good examples of these things being handled properly, in my opinion, and I've seen bad examples. What do you mean, like um, PR-wise? Well, I mean, the thing is, the what I've learned is, um, you you need what you need to do is say, and and you you've got a piece of video that shows one part of what happened, right? And and that video may be, you know, uh, once you look at get all the witness statements and look at it from all the different angles. You might be that video. Maybe uh, it, what it appears to show may be what happened. Uh, but there are many cases where there are a lot more facts involved in it. And usually those videos show, you know, they take a slice of time out of the entire incident. So you lose some context. They, uh, video evidence is two dimensional. So depending on what angle you're looking at things. Totally. But, uh, and I think that the public would be more ready to accept that statement, which is often what's being said. If there was a general, uh, trust that the police force cared and recognized that sometimes mistakes are made, you know, I feel like the public has this narrative for better for I mean um, uh, whether it's justified or not that when police come forward and say well you know we need to look at the whole story what they hear is you're going to cover this up even if it is a problem and you don't care about us you you only care about yourselves and preserving yourselves you know that's that's the vibe that comes across and now my profession is the same uh there's many bad apples in my field as well. And we get a bad, you know, therapists don't have a, you know, in Seattle, we have a great reputation, I would imagine in general, but around the world, we don't, you know, and Tom Cruise hates us, for example. (laughs) And, uh, 
what and That's we have a, a must be a tough one to swallow <laughs> <laughs> and uh see there's that college wit pat that's yeah. good um and the problem is we don't have a voice that comes forward and says uh, uh you know we care about the public and we're and we're not gonna protect our own and if you know we're we're on your side you know if this ends up panning out that this bad apple did something terrible like we're more upset than you are because none of us are doing those things and and we want we don't want that person to represent us you know like there's there's a problem in my profession too but the difference is is your profession is just so much more in the media for for obvious reasons and 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 so i i just think that your department needs like some, I mean, like I remember there were community representative officers or what do they call those people? They public information officers or is that it was their, their main, I worked as a therapist. I worked with some of them and their, their main job was to just interface with the public. Oh yeah. Community service officers. Yeah. Community yeah. service officers. And like they educated the front officers. There's a bunch of different, they went models. to, the you know what colloquially we would call the projects or the you know the section eight housing areas in seattle and they would just go door to door and say hey how's it going just introducing myself you know and they were like really um good communicators and they came across extremely nice and were dedicated to um essentially trying to create a good interface between police and the public, you know, where certain immigrants would be normally very distrustful given certain things. And, and so I, I just feel like police departments need something like that. You know, like you need to have your own podcast about policing or something, you know what I mean? There needs to be, wouldn't be allowed to do that. But, so. but why do you know what I mean? Like how come, how come no, there like maybe there is, but how, how, educative that would be to the public and and how how you could win people's hearts over if there was a popular police podcast think, made by police officers i think uh i think police departments are actually um getting a little bit better in that area too i i i know i've been through some uh media training in the last i was the last three to, last three to five years and uh we're um, you know, I see Sat- Seattle's on Twitter and tweeting stuff out, and uh, yeah, that's true. Um, so, I yeah, they tweet out like warm stories about you know some kid who hugs a police officer or something. There, yeah. So there's definitely stuff like that. Um, uh, I just, I just wish think it in, was stronger. In that specific situation where something bad happens, um, it is just. Uh, I mean, it's a perfect storm of, um, emotion and, uh, and I think some, uh, um, agencies have handled that a lot better than other agencies. But I think what it really comes down to is the work that you've done before and the level of confidence the community has in its police department. Um, and, you know, I think some of these um, situations have occurred in communities where that relationship is already super strained. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of like throwing a tinder on a, uh, you know, in a dry field. It just, 
it's the straw that lights it off. I I don't pretend to have all the answers. No, no. I and, just know. I just my like. I feel awful for every part of the when those things happen. I mean, um, I don't. There may be some people like this, but I don't think cops go out. They're not looking to kill people when they go to work, right? I mean, they're just. That's not. Uh, well, I, I would say that I haven't ever seen that. Right. So. I mean, I would say that you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of police officers, but you know, there are psychopathic people among us. For and, sure. And if if you're a police officer, I'm guessing that. Um, I mean, uh, among the tens of thousands of police officers, some of them have got to be psychopathic, and some of those psychopathic people have to be, yeah, a little interested in cruelty. Um, and maybe, you know, those well, are some of the way cases. out of my area. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, we have psychologists, we pay them to come in and screen people. So maybe it's the psychologist's fault. Um, so final question before we go, uh, you said earlier that we could do better with training. We could do better with, uh, training the officers to avoid these situations. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess my thought is that um, the the thing that has changed the most since I've been in this line of work is the amount of uh, training that occurs. Uh, when I started, it was, a th- uh, I, I mentioned it was a three-month academy. It's now a six-month academy. Um, the thing is that our, I think in the like 40s and 50s, and you'd probably know more about this than I do uh we institutionalize a lot of the people that are now out on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably wasn't, uh, you know, uh, very fair to the people who, you know, they had a mental problem. It was and, better than it is now, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I mean, it wasn't ideal, but at least you're not just leaving them hanging high and dry. Well, and we have, I mean, I think one of the really challenging, uh, one of the re- really uh, difficult and challenging areas right now for law enforcement is we encounter people that are um, on one or more drugs, uh, you know, have crippling uh, substance abuse problems, have a variety of mental um, conditions that are affecting their behavior, uh, or all of these all at the same time. Uh, and there are th- do's and don'ts, as you probably know, in uh, dealing with people depending on what their condition is and what drug they're on. And Yeah, and, I mean, they could literally believe truly that police officers are agents of the devil and they are Jesus and they are here to eradicate d- demons from the earth and, and, and will take actions, you know, b- believing they have the power to do so, you know? So, uh, that's an extreme kind of specific situation, but, but it happens. So there's a lot of training now to try to get help officers have at least a rudimentary understanding of what they might be dealing with in terms of mental illness. And, uh, um, instead of just treating them like, they're in control of their faculties, right? Right. I mean, we used to, I think I was taught initially a one size fits all approach to, to, to you know, do it, do it now, you know, uh, tell, ask somebody to do something, tell them to do it. 
and at some point you got to make them do it and, and it's just getting more sophisticated uh, but that all takes time and money and resources totally and, and I, i've always thought that and tell me what you think that we are asking police officers to do essentially like 20 different professionals jobs like you have to be physical like there are times when you have to essentially be like a like a bouncer at times where someone takes a swing at you and you have to you have to take him down you, you, that's a very specific skill like judo or taekwondo or you know right. uh gun work uh taser work like that's a that's like soldiering essentially you know it's a a very uh very specific skill that um the average person doesn't know how to do and there's you could dealing with explosives there's first aid cpr dealing um, with mental illness yeah it just goes on and on, and on. uh dealing with domestic domestic violence how to determine in a domestic violence call who is the aggressor and who is the victim um, sexual assault uh, you have to be a lawyer because you have to understand the law like as it applies yeah. to your job which is pretty complex you have to be able to communicate well you have to be good with paperwork you have to be a good driver you have to work well with uh, your coworkers. Uh, there's so many different jobs that uh, you have to be excellent at and in the moment in a crisis scenario and I've always thought that in a in a best case in a you know the best world we would either have a team of professionals each trained in a different thing. You know, one guy is really good with like guns. doctors, <laughs> doctors have specialized yeah. off into, yeah. Right. Or, um, the A team, for example, well, police you know? departments do that a little bit. We have hostage negotiators. We have, uh, tactical or SWAT. But on teams. a typical call, it's just the deputy who's just generally, you know, a deputy or an officer, yeah. officer who's just generally, uh, trained. Right. And so, uh, and he or she has to, uh, be, you know, be this perfect individual on their feet. And I'm always like, that's just too much to ask someone. So either there would be different calls would would have different people go, or every call would have like maybe three or four people each that have a different skill. You know, the guy takes a swing, you know, officer a takes over there's Dwayne a mental Johnson, the rock <laughs> right. steps in, right? <laughs> yeah. Be a Baracus. Yeah. Um, there needs to be a negotiation face, you know, steps forward. Um, there's a, you know, a mechanical situation. Then, you know, you got Mur Murdoch. Was it Murdoch? Yeah. So you're saying police department should have a teams. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love it when a plan comes together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Pat. You, yep. you're, you're a brave person to come on a liberal Seattle podcast and talk about policing. Yeah. How'd it feel? I felt good. I like, uh, uh, I think there are things we need to discuss. And so, yeah, I was happy to help. Yeah. Well, I think you did your part to help people to feel better about, um, you know, police officers, you know, that trust is just so important to feel like when you're interfacing or when you see police officers, um, it's, I think, so important to to feel like you can trust those people. And I think it feeds off each other, you know, because if you distrust police or your community just trusts police, then you give, you give them sort of bad looks or you react badly to them and the police officers go to work every day just feeling like shit and they feel like the community hates me so 
fuck them, you know what I mean? And so I'm, you know, if I just, if I get spit at and thrown at every day, why should I work so hard to try to protect these people? You know, it's natural to have those attitudes. And so I, I really hope that the general goodwill can, can occur. And so that we can begin to, you know, uh, accelerate the uh, training and other kinds of issues that I think, uh, you know, obviously we're working on, but could do more on. Right. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.